have a conference with Santa. Let's turn to Romans chapter 16. See, I mean, I had to say that because there's a young man in the front row that still believes. Okay, um, Romans chapter 16. And let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation. Remember, tomorrow night, right here, we will have the Phil Henry Power Gospel. And it's always a good time of fellowship in the Word. And you even get breaks in between the five-minute messages. So I encourage you all to come. I've been to a couple of them myself and really enjoyed them. So that's tomorrow night, December 21st. All right, let's take a few moments of silent preparation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've provided. We came through doors in this building to congregate here, but you opened the door for us to congregate, a door that cannot be closed by any person. We thank you now that you provided this opportunity, and we ask that you'll grant us the grace through supernatural attentiveness on the things that we're studying tonight, that we can benefit to the maximum from them. And so that we can bear a resemblance, a paternal resemblance to our father in heaven, whose love is perfect. And we thank you for this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. The pincer movement that I've begun with in Romans still seems to be working. That means we're approaching the center from the front and the back of Romans and it seems to be a profitable way, profitable way to go so far. In Romans 1.7, Paul greets all the saints in Rome. In Romans 16.3 through 15, which we've already handled in, ex, in an exposition, Paul greets specific saints by name and salutes certain congregations of saints there some of whom met in homes, some in workplaces, some in tenement buildings in the urban slums. In Romans 16, 16, and that's where we're going to settle down tonight, Paul the Apostle urges the saints in all of these settings to greet one another with a holy kiss. God's Son, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead in Romans 1, 4. By the spirit of holiness, according to the spirit of holiness, and by God's power. And the saints are to greet one another with a holy kiss. So that too is according to the spirit of holiness. There is in the scripture described a deceitful kiss. Like the kiss of Judas Iscariot. He kissed Jesus with the intent of identifying him to the authorities who came to arrest him. There is a seductive kiss, the kiss of a predator intent on sexual conquest and enslavement. These are unholy kisses. 
In Psalm 2.12, there is the kiss that God commands the kings of the earth to give to his son. Kiss the son, he says, in Psalm 2.12, lest you perish in the way. These are kings that have entered into a word that's become pretty popular lately, collusion together to execute a coup on the Messiah King. And God, Yahweh in heaven, says, kiss the son who is the king, lest you perish in the way. You will certainly perish in your conspiratorial coup against him. So this is the kiss that God commands the kings of the earth to give his son, the messianic king. So here we're dealing not so much with a literal kiss in which lips meet, but the metaphor for a heartfelt pledge of the mouth of allegiance to the Son of God. This we know will be the ultimate eschatological event for at the name of Jesus, every knee will genuflect and every tongue acknowledge Yahweh to be Yeshua, the Lord to be Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. So there is this kiss the Son. It is the heartfelt pledge of allegiance, as Isaiah forty-five twenty-three says, cited or quoted in Romans fourteen eleven. Every knee will bow to me, says Yahweh, and every tongue sing praise to me. Confess, as Isaiah forty-five twenty-three says, pledge allegiance to me. The alternative to this allegiance by the kings of the earth, as they maintain their collusion against the king of kings, is that they perish in the way. History records a series of kings that have perished in the way. They have perished never giving honor to the son, never acknowledging with heart or mouth the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In fact, the kings of the earth or the cosmic rulers colluded against the Son, against the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2.8. And if they had ever known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory because it meant resurrection and ascension of the king, and it meant their destruction, a destruction, however, that we know is ultimately salvific and redemptive even of the, those who perish in the way. So, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, in an earlier epistle, and Paul did write 1 Corinthians before Romans, Paul takes hold of this idea of a curse pronouncement, and he cursed, pronounced a curse on any person who does not love the Lord. And here the word for love is the same word for kiss. It is phileo. It has the dual meaning of have affection for and kiss. Now Paul should not be interpreted as a man who goes around pronouncing curses. In fact, quite the opposite. On the contrary, it was a practice of Paul to bless even those who cursed him. 
even his persecutors. In obedience to his Lord, bless those who persecute you. Do the good to those who despise you. Pray for those who despise and persecute you. So when Paul talks about this curse, he is merely echoing the command of Yahweh to honor his son as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's also voicing, in a sense, the alternative. As that of being cursed by separation from fellowship with God and with the saints in whose hearts the love of God is being poured out. And this is not a curse on outsiders, as we call them, but an acknowledgement of the supreme preeminence of God's Son. For you and for me, it's a pleasure to acknowledge his preeminence over all things. For there we experience the blessedness of being a subject to the king. Romans is all about acquiring a universal willingness on the part of the recipients of this epistle, a universal willingness of obedience, the obedience of faith, which we can say is an obedience of allegiance to the king of kings. It's pretty controversial if you look at it that way, and that's only one angle of Romans, to have such a document reach the city of Rome, the center of the Caesar cult, with the declaration that the king is one Yeshua of Nazareth, risen from the dead by the power of God, overtaking Caesar in reality, who claimed to be a universal savior. So, Paul should not be interpreted then as a man who curses people. He is merely accentuating the honor due to Yahweh and his son. In fact, Jesus Christ, God's Son, is destined to be willingly acknowledged as king by every tongue, as every knee will bend in humble adoration, as the hymn says, of Yahweh, also known as Jesus. By God's faithfulness, and that's an important phrase, we have been called into participation with his Son. 1 Corinthians 1.9, compared with Romans 1.6, you've been called to belong to him. The alternative would not be blessedness. So there is a holy kiss, like the kiss of righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They've kissed each other in Christ, in the person of Christ and in the event of his crucifixion mercy and truth have met together the truth is God's mercy as we will learn in Romans 9 and I said I would let go let the cats out of the bag early and let some of the major themes in Romans enlighten our exposition Romans 9 seems to be talking about a double predestination but the election and rejection of God 
is not that at all. Calvin and his students had it wrong. Even rejection by God was called teleological, and that means it's to the purpose of a telos, an end, which is election. And so God rejects his own people, Israel, on the basis of their disobedience to the covenant in order to elect a people who did not seek after him in order to turn around again and elect his own people who did not seek after him either in the right way. Romans 9, interpreted finally in Romans 11. There is a holy kiss then. There is a holy greeting in the Lord that does not have to connote the meeting of lips or a kiss on both sides of the face as practiced by the Europeans. There is a holy kiss that may be as we know, any kind of greeting of affection. And I always make light of the fact that during flu season, the fist bump is a great holy kiss, especially a gloved one. That shows affection for one another, I think. Affection and care. So there is a holy kiss that may be a hug, a half hug. That's the male version of the hug. It's kind of like the half hug. Or even a military-style salute. In fact, the aspazomai used here in over and over again in Romans, greet Rufus and his mother and mine, he said. Greet this person. Greet this ampliatus. Greet Prisca and Achilla. Greet Tryphosa and Tryphena. Greet. These word greet can either mean greet with affection or salute in a military style. Salute. And that's fitting, as we'll see. There is a holy greeting among fellow believers in which there is a show of mutual love and respect and even an affection that derives from a mutual knowledge that we together were among the unrighteous for whom the righteous one died, that we together were among the ungodly for whom Christ died, that we together were the sinners for whom Christ came into this world to save, that we together were the enemies of God, that God reconciled while we were in that state. It's a recognition of universal sinfulness. And so our holy greetings one to another are given in the spirit of holiness, according to which power God raised Jesus from the dead. Even our greeting is a celebration of the resurrection from the dead by which God declared Jesus to be his son. In greeting one another with true affection, with the love of God poured out in our hearts, we are actually kissing the son, honoring Christ himself. Our greeting of one another with heartfelt affection, with heartfelt inclusiveness. You almost picture a circle of people that know each other. 
a huddle or a clique of people. They're all, they know each other, and there's someone standing about who doesn't know you, and is kind of a new person or something, and you just open the circle and receive that person, listen to that person, and engage that person in animated conversation just like you did with the others. That's kind of like what's happening here. After all, Jesus Christ received us into the society of the triune God, into the circle of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, to the glory of God. And so our greeting of one another with heartfelt affection is an acknowledgement of our affection for Christ who welcomed us to the glory of God in Romans 15, 7. In fact, this points back to Romans 15, 7. There is a reaching back. And the loving command that the saints in Rome, from whatever cell, whatever house church, from whatever race, ethnicity, background, or liturgical church practice, from whatever social strata, political party, to receive one another as Christ received you to the glory of God. Today, this applies very specifically and pointedly. Today, a Pentecostal from the bayou can greet with great affection a Presbyterian from Bel Air. A Baptist from the south can greet a Catholic from the north. A member of a predominantly Irish Catholic church can salute with affection a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. A member of a Greater Grace Church, if there's such a name, can embrace a member of a Greater Works Fellowship, if there is such a name. A male Tetelestai pastor can be greatly encouraged and receive insight from a female Episcopal priest or a female Catholic theologian and researcher. Many things seek to divide. Many things seek to divide us. But two things unite us. Our former ungodliness unto condemnation and death, and our present rectification unto sanctification and life. And these two things are really one. Said another way, many things divide us, but one person unites us the one man, Jesus Christ through whose obedience to the extent of death on a cross, we all have the rectification that is his own life. As we'll see, rectification is a far better word than justification. He rectifies, sets right, and makes right the ungodly in Romans 4.5. Romans 5.18. By his death on the cross... We all have the rectification that is his own life. The possession of his own life is all the setting right we need. It's all the making right that we need. 
And one day we will receive the very bodily life of his bodily resurrection. And we all anticipate that. It's the one hope. One hope. A saint who believes that the redemption wrought in Christ will ultimately embrace all of humanity. And I'm of that number. I believe that. And there are even among our number those who hope that's true and those who are convinced that it's true. I'm one of those who is convinced that it's true, but there are those who are not convinced. They're not outsiders. They aren't people that we expel from our fellowship and refuse to welcome to our circle. They are not at all that. If it were not for some insight that God granted us, we wouldn't have that conviction. And we're not the ones that can turn on the light. Only God is. God will convince. And so a saint who believes that the redemption wrought in Christ will embrace all of humanity may embrace with affection and total acceptance the brother or sister who does not see it that way and maybe even declares to you with passion will never see it that way. But we embrace. God will convince, according to Philippians 3.15, God will convince. God will persuade anyone that needs to be persuaded. God will give a change of mind to anyone who requires repentance. And we all require it somewhere, somehow, about something. You say, what about those who are not yet in Christ? Well, we do not see them as hopeless at all, even though they do not have and hold the hope that we have. The hope that is Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 1.1. The love of Christ controls us toward them as well. The love of Christ was demonstrated while we were there. For Christ died for all. If one died for all, says the scripture, then all died. All may not be aware of it yet. And so we know no person after the flesh, none, no one after the flesh. Not only does Paul encourage the holy kiss of, of one of another, as you see in verse 16b, and we're not going to really get that far, but he opens a wider horizon, and Romans is all about horizons. It's the ninth theological functional specialty, and I'm anticipating a tenth. But he opens a wider horizon by saying all the churches in Christ, that means everywhere from Jerusalem to Illyricum, where Paul has brought his message, all the, all the churches in Christ salute you. All of them do. They salute you. A wider horizon. 1616b. So with this greeting, we have a glimpse of the small beginnings, which we should not despise. The small beginnings of the answer to Jesus Christ's prayer to his father.
that they may be one as we are one. As we are one. And when that happens, guess what Jesus goes on to say in John seventeen twenty one, That they may be one as we are one so that all the world will know that you sent me. The unit integrity of believers together is the greatest impetus for the gospel, the life-giving word of God, to go to the world, to those who have not yet heard his name, or to those who have only heard his name in cursing or in empty liturgy. A unit integrity that manifests and reflects the unit integrity of the triune God in love is already the announcement that God sent his son. It's a living epistle of it, a living evangel of it. It announces to the whole world the gospel of God sending his son on a divine mission, a divine saving mission, a divine universal saving mission. This is what Romans is about. Unity, unity or unit integrity resulting in the effective proclamation of the life-giving gospel to the world. Specifically stated, it's the unity of the Roman saints resulting in the effective evangelism of Spain, which Paul anticipates coming through Romans, coming through Rome. In fact, when he says, I expect to have some fruit from you in Romans 1.11, and he talks about 1.13 also, he talks about strengthening them when he gets there. Sterizo means to establish in the kingdom of God, to, to establish them. Sterizo in Romans one eleven to 13 is also used in Romans 16 again, 25. God who is able to sterizo, strengthen you according to my gospel and according to the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of a mystery. So we have the pincer movement working and it keeps working. So I'll keep executing that strategy, that tactic. So this is what Romans is about. Unity resulting in the effective proclamation of the life-giving gospel to the world. And for Romans, Paul receiving some fruit from them means that he expects and hopes that when he gets there, he will receive some substantial tactical and logistical support for his mission to Spain. Because he says, I owe a debt in Romans 1.15. Not only to the Jews and to the Greco-Romans or the Greeks, but also to the barbarians. Those that have never heard the name Yahweh. Those who have never heard the name Jesus. And that meant Paul's intense desire to get to Spain, which would have completed an arc of coherence of his proclamation of the gospel beginning at Jerusalem, going all the way up to the Eastern European section called Illyricum, going all the way to Spain. 
Did Paul ever make it to Spain? And so we have this. The only thing I desire to survey tonight is just this one thing. Greet one another with a holy kiss. But that takes us everywhere. Greet is this word. And I've said I'm going to try to just keep the English transliteration instead of looking like I'm showing off with all the Greek letters. It's this word. As. Pas. Sasthe. Aspasastha, and it comes from the Greek form of the word, which in its final form is apa or as, I'm sorry, A-S-P-A-Z-O-M-A-I, aspazomai. And again, I said this before, I'll say it again, it means to greet, but it's not just some informal greeting, it also means to salute. We're not dealing here with a casual informality we're dealing here with the recognition in our greetings of one another even if it's high down the hall a wave a salute one of those roman salutes from the heart it's a salute and this latter word salute is applicable in military settings and i think it's applicable here too in romans 16 over and over again sometimes he's greeting Individual saints, sometimes he's greeting what we might call platoon leaders or cell leaders, house churches, tenement churches, workplace, cell groups. Because you see, the church is a series of phalanxes advancing as colonial citizen soldiers of the heavenly city-state in an apocalyptic eschatological war which God has declared against supernatural, superhuman powers called sin, death, principalities and powers in opposition to the gospel. You say, where do you get that? For one, I get it in Philippians one twenty-seven to 28. Conduct yourselves as citizen soldiers of the heavenly polis or city-state not intimidated by your adversaries and your lack of intimidation is the indication of their doom. And God does not doom people against whom we advance the gospel. He dooms supernatural powers that have exercised control up until now, up until Christ, up until the Christ event. God has declared war on these powers. They're too great for us. Jeremiah 31, 11. And we have to arm ourselves with the full armor from God and take it off the rack and put it on our soul. And above all these is the shield of faith, which is our mutual participation in the fidelity of Jesus Christ and our mutual allegiance to the King of Kings. We take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We, our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, a gospel of reconciliation. We have on the belt of truth. We have on the breastplate of deliverance, of righteousness. So we are in. 
And if there's a rebuke here, the Christian who is AWOL, repeatedly absent without leave, who forsakes the assembling of himself with others, is a one who is refusing to participate in this apocalyptic eschatological war. And so God would strongly encourage and put the pressure, I call it the gentle pressure of omnipower on such a person. And there's a lot of things that mean assembling yourselves together, depending on geographical location, of course. These sinful powers are headed up in one name, and his name is Satana, the adversary. And it's interesting that right in this passage in Romans 16, right up a few verses later in 1620, Paul announces and assures the saints that Satan will be crushed to pieces under their feet shortly. That means the eschatological victory over sin and death and the snares of death and death over which the devil has power will be totally eradicated. Romans 16.20, so salute may in fact be the preferable word to represent aspazomai here, which is used so many times, I think maybe 16 times, if I remember right. I was looking at this this morning at around 4.30, so I hope I remember it right. Salute may in fact then be the preferable word. The kiss as a salute also indicates a special affection for fellows in Christ. The word fellow means someone, a sharer in Christ. Indeed, it's a special affection for Christ himself. Imagine saying hi, saying hello, but you're saying it as if you're saying it to Christ himself with that kind of affection. It's like we're living there already. The place where God is there in total manifestation. The last word in Ezekiel, the Lord is there. The comfort I've taken this week with my mother's passing is I know she's there where the Lord is there. I mean there. Now, this kiss as a salute, indicates special affection for Christ himself. In one real sense, then, to greet one another in a deceitful way, to greet one another in a seductive way, would not be the greeting of Christ. How could we do that? In one real sense, then, to greet one another with a holy kiss is to kiss the Son. It's interesting, then, that Jesus uses the same word, aspazomai, the same word he uses in Matthew 5.47, where he, he chides or kind of cartoons those people that huddle in their cliques and refuse to salute someone outside of their group because they are riddled with group bias. The most masterful treatment of group bias is in Bernard Lonergan's book called Insight. If you have that book or you have access to that book, look in the index and read where he talks about general bias, group bias, common sense bias. 
This is what Paul is. And I never knew years ago when I took, undertook that very daunting mission to read that little book is what he called it. My little book. Really? That little 760-page book that I would have tracks to run on for an accurate depiction of the total argumentation of Paul in Romans and what it's against. It's against group bias everywhere it's found. And this time in which we live is riddled with the cancer of group bias. And it has infected the community of the Messiah himself. So Romans comes as a word that God sends to heal them. In Romans 107, 20. It's sent as a way that Yahweh speaks peace and harmony to his people. In Psalm 85, 8. It's interesting then that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 47, he does kind of a cerebral cartoon, which many of his parables are that. They're cerebral cartooning. And he shows those who only give friendly greetings to the members of their immediate social circle. And he says, what good is that? Even the pagans do that. Even the publicans do that. Even you say, you, the tax collectors do that. That's, a, that's no big deal. That doesn't distinguish your greeting and your behavior from anyone else. What good is it? So he adds that this is the common practice of the Gentile pagans, and he contrasts that kind of love. I don't know if our Lord did air quotes. I doubt it. But he might have had. I I can imagine some of his gestures, though, because his parables often were cartoons, kind of like graphic cartooning. An unjust judge. An importune widow nagging him. You get the picture. It's radically picturesque. But he contrasts that kind of love, which is really group bias, with the perfect love of the Father in heaven. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the context there in 548 is, be perfect in the sense that your horizon is larger and that you greet with love and include with your greetings others outside of your social circle. And then he says, after all, your father makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, he's not saying that God the Father distinguishes unrighteous from righteous and evil from good. He doesn't. People do that. And that's exactly what's happening. Well, those Jewish Christians, they still follow the law and some of the kosher things. They're not righteous. We will not greet them. We are the righteous. They are the unrighteous. That's a distinction God doesn't make. People make it. Separating from fellowship over kosher laws, food laws, what you eat, what you don't eat. Are you kidding me? And yet that's subtly done all the time now. I got the special diet book, and anybody that doesn't go by my diet really isn't quite as holy as I am. They don't even care like I do. 
to strive for the perfect human specimen of bodily perfection. (laughs) You mean they're not idolaters like you? Is that what you mean? Okay. Bodily exercise profits just a little bit, just a little. And that implies to me that you only need just a little. But godliness has profit both for this life and the one to come. Be zealous where that is concerned. There's exercise you can do in this life that makes you strong in the next. That, to me, I take seriously. So the point in Jesus' words do not indicate that God distinguishes the evil and the good as if he takes here some sheep over here and some Goats over here. That's not what God does. You see, the line runs through all of us. The evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. The line runs through all of us. When dictators oppress countries, the oppressed often betray one another for food. Give up one another to the government to be executed to survive. The line runs through the dictator, the oppressor. And the oppressed. In fact, make the oppressed the oppressor, and he'll probably oppress better than the oppressor of himself in vengeance and vindication. So men do that. God rectifies the ungodly. That's the whole heart of the matter in Romans 4 5. God rectifies, sets right the ungodly. I didn't come to call the righteous, Jesus said, but sinners to repentance. And repentance is that which God grants to people in Acts eleven eighteen. And faith is that which the gospel elicits in people. We have nothing to boast in. We have no claims on superior honor, no matter what we are, where we've come from, how much wealth we've accumulated, or how much popularity or fame. If people really knew the ultimate end of fame without integrity, they'd never try to be the next American idol or the next voice of voices. And I'm not against those competitions, but you almost especially when you get up around 40 like me, you start thinking in a paternal way toward people and you see someone win this fantastic contest and you say, almost with a fatherly thing, Father, protect them from fame. Because when you've lived long enough to see Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, you've lived long enough to see the most famous and almost adulated people, and you see them destroyed in their fame, you just just say, okay, that's pretty cool and good and the ticker tape parade and all that, but I don't know. I don't want it. Give me a cottage and some salad with love rather than a mansion with daily ribeye steaks with no love there. That's what the proverb writer said. God rectifies the ungodly and he transforms the evil into good. So he's not interested in 
doing the election and rejection thing and the double predestinations thing and separating and sending some to hell and some to heaven. God rectifies the ungodly and everybody's ungodly. God saves the unrighteous and dies for the unrighteous in Christ and everybody's unrighteous except the righteous one. Universal triumphant mercy is what we've all received. So how do you hold on to superior claims to honor? When you've been classed under sin, irrevocably and helplessly, and then classed under divine mercy, gloriously and triumphantly, how do you hold on? How do you do like the cartoon Jesus drew in his parable? A man sat down and he wrote the debt off another person. He did it, frankly, he did it just openly and candidly. He said, okay, you owe $50,000 or $50 million, say, in today's right, in today's values. I see that you owe $50 million. And the guy's standing at the desk, and he says, yeah. And he, he says, void. That man goes away, and he can't wait to chase down the guy that owes him $100 to choke him until the coins fall out of his pockets. That's a cartoon. That doesn't square with reality. How can someone be forgiven $50 million and then go track down somebody that owes him 100 That is absolutely the insane lack of response to the mercy of God. In other words, the mercy of God shown to us, once we understand it, we can't help but be merciful. And we stop competing for claims to superior honor or prestige or recognition. Don't be like the Pharisees, Jesus said. And listen, I love what Karl Barth did. Don't become a Pharisee of freedom. There are those that turn against the church. I've seen so many people come out of the Catholic church and they turn on the Catholic church. You know what they become? Protestant Pharisees. Pharisees of freedom. So it's easy to become a Pharisee. It's easy to judge the elder brother when the father said to the elder brother, not, hey, you're going to hell. Your, your prodigal son is the guy I favor. He said, you know what? All that I've ever had has been yours all along. But he said, don't be like these guys that give. They send somebody in first to blow a bugle. Everybody in town in the market square says, what's that bugle all about? And the guy says, it's all about me giving $20 into the Salvation Army container. Jesus said, if you're going to give, give quietly in the closet where only your heavenly father sees. So the best kind of giving isn't the kind that you want the government to take note of or that you want to write down about what you gave, even if it's to acknowledge yourself. The best kind, and that which gives the most return, is the generosity you show that nobody ever will find out about except your Heavenly Father. It's hard to do in Christmas because you sign your name to the things you give. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what I'm talking about. If we, Jesus said, if you want to be his sons, and that doesn't mean you got to do this to become a son of God, but he says, if you want to show a paternal resemblance of your father, 
then be like him. He doesn't discriminate and say, oh, that sun that's shining, I'm going to kind of put an eclipse over those evil people because then it would be an eclipse over us all. Or I'm going to have it rain, but the rain's going to stop right there. You ever see one of those rains where you see where it ends? God says, I'm ending that rain. I'm the the unrighteous are over here. The rain ends right there. If he did that, he'd have to stop the rain on the whole world. He doesn't. You want to be like your father? Greet those with love outside your circle. Include those outside your social secure social circle. I almost said social security. I hope your security doesn't come from social security. That's like the wealth of the world. There's not too secure. So in, in, we'll do this in the last seven or eight minutes. One another is another word I want to use, and it's another A word, so I'll do it this way. A-L-L-E-L-O-U-S. Alleluus means one another. It's a reciprocal, accusative masculine plural of allelon. And for those who speak Greek, Modern Greek is not Koine Greek, so you really can't say I'm mispronouncing it, but I probably am mispronouncing every Greek word I've ever said. So hopefully the Lord will not judge me upon that. It's a, it's a reciprocal accusative masculine plural of alone. Now the word in this very form appears eight other times in Romans. So it reaches back when Paul talks about this is what you do with one another. This is what you do to one another. He goes back, and there's eight other uses of this. And it has to do, all of them, with the reciprocal treatment of people by people. And so it goes back to Romans 12.10, where alalos is used twice to one another. And it's first by the command to show filial affection, family or filial, brotherly, sisterly, sibling affection for one another devotedly. Be devoted to that filial affection. It's kind of like Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love, Philadelphia, continue. Don't cut it off. Let it continue. And secondly, it's used twice in Romans 12, 10, to, he says, outdo one another. In other words, compete with each other in showing honor to each other. He actually flips that whole script in a radical way. You want to compete for honor, the receiving of honor. Listen to this. Compete and try to outdo each other in giving honor to others. Man, how this cuts like a double-edged sword through the heart of the group biases. Which give rise to prejudices that riddled the cell groups of believers in Rome. There was even names given. We're the strong in faith. They're the weak in faith. Oh, we'll give them that. 
They got faith, but it's weak. And so they despise the weak brother who still may have kosher meals or still may acknowledge one day in the calendar of the Jewish calendar over another day. Or maybe even acknowledge one of the days of the pagan holidays as a kind of a special day. You could put Christmas on either one of those calendars. It can be a pagan holiday or it can be a Jewish holiday or a Christian holiday. So-and-so doesn't celebrate Christmas. Damn them. Really? So-and-so celebrates Hanukkah. Acknowledges Hanukkah. That's why they have lights. It's not because you have lights. They have lights because Hanukkah was celebrated by lights. It was called the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication of the Temple after Judas the Hammer. You can't touch this Maccabees. Defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. So, these biases gave rise to competitiveness to claim superior honor over other groups. And so, to the precise contrary of vying for receiving honor, Paul says, hey, compete. In giving honor to one another. I love that. The urgent appeal also goes to the heart of the gospel itself, in which the slave and the apostle of Jesus Christ is not ashamed. He said, I am not ashamed. The opposite of honor. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, yeah but also to the Greco-Roman. And as we know from 1 Timothy 4.10, even those that believe are not exclusive objects of God's saving grace because he is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. The gospel is the power to save all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, or we might say the Greco-Roman no one who believes in the stone that God laid in Zion. I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious stone. He that believes in him shall not be ashamed. Hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is poured out in our hearts. That's Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. at the deep roots of what Paul is saying here. Paul is not a covenant theologian. Paul is a scriptural theologian. He doesn't use the scriptures to make a covenant case. He uses the engagement in the scriptures to manifest a universal salvific savior. The urgent appeal goes to the heart of the gospel itself then in Romans 1.16. It's an honor-shame thing. It is the power to save all whether slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, low-born or high-born, Samaritan or Jew. Alleluus then, not alleluia. Alleluus reaches back to other passages which tell the saints what to do with regard to each other. 
How do I treat each other? How do we treat each other? Romans twelve sixteen. I'll just do these really quickly and we'll close. It says, be intent on one another's concerns. Not just with your own concerns. We all can get looped into that. We have a concern. We've suffered a loss. Well, did you hear that your brother or your sister has also suffered a loss? Be concerned with one another's concerns. In Romans 13, 8, leave no debt outstanding to anyone, he says. Oh, except for this one. To love one another. Alleluia. To love one another. Pay that debt. It's outstanding. Pay it. Romans 14, 13. Let us no longer judge one another. There's a negative one. Let's no longer judge one another. The weak in faith judge the strong in faith because they don't have a kosher table. Because they don't eat vegetables only. Because they don't honor a certain day. And so there's judgment of the strong by the weak, and there's despising or belittling or setting it not as if they're nothing of the weak by the strong. That's not supposed to be going on. That's not how we treat one another. That's really no different than treating one another in Romans 127 by burning in passion one for another and using each other to fulfill each other's lust. What's the difference? Well, of course, there's a difference in outcomes. But Romans one twenty seven, in fact, it says one another. The wrath of God does not come because people lust after one another and fulfill their lusts one to another. The wrath of God is that going on. And it's interesting that Romans one eighteen to 32, you say that's the teacher speaking. Even if it is, Paul doesn't say he disagrees. He just says, yeah, but you do the same things by judging. It's interesting, very much interesting, that he includes both hetero and homosexual perversion there. And that is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is actually the sinfulness in which we engage. It doesn't come because we're sinful. It's the sinfulness is the wrath. God's action is a shocking thing. That's why God rejects and God elects, but God rejects in order to elect. But he never elects in order to reject. There's a teleological function there. So in Romans 15, 7. Well, let's make 14, 19 first. Therefore, let us pursue. Let's get all eight of them. Let us pursue, he says, things that make for the upbuilding of one another. Alleluia. Upbuilding of one another. Mutual edification. Elevating grace toward one another. All of this reaches back to Romans 5, 5, as we'll see. But Paul says, after he finishes the main body of the letter and the main body of the argument, in Romans fifteen fourteen, he says, Now I myself am persuaded about you, my brothers and my sisters, that you are full of beneficence. You are full of goodness. You're full of generosity, because it's the fruit of the Spirit, you see. And that you're full of knowledge. And so you're all able to exhort and encourage one another. Because you're full of knowledge, the knowledge of the word of God. 
And all of this, in closing, reaches back to the love of God, which the Holy Spirit floods our heart with in Romans 5.5. 5. This love of God is the otherworldly love which God demonstrated when Christ died while we were yet sinners in Romans 5.8. If we were loved by God in such an extreme, while all still sinners, while all ungodly, while all enemies of his, if we were loved by God to such an extreme while we were at such an extremity of his enemies, then how shall his love in us not welcome and accept and seek the honor of those who, like us, have been reconciled to God? In Christ. For this reason, Romans 12, 9 stands out in bold relief like a headline. And it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be. Hey, agape. Let love be without hypocrisy. Anupakritos. Let love be without hypocrisy. The point is, love is not authentic. But only it's hypocritical. If it is only shown for the members of my particular platoon. Now all these exhortations are contrasted with Romans 127 in which Alalus is used. In which it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven in those who burn with passion for one another. Which means to use one another to fulfill one's own lusts and needs. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections, its passions, and its lusts. Galatians 5.24 compared to Romans 6.1 and 4. Finally, in accordance with the vast area of agreement between Paul and John, which should invite a series in the future. The great vast area of agreement between Paul and John. There is Alelus twice. In John 13, 34, in which Jesus says, I have a new commandment for you. Just as God commands life, and no one can say anything about it, Jesus commands love, and no one can contradict that mandate. He says, here's my new commandment, my new Torah for you. Love one another. Alleluia. Love one another. And then he says this, though, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. How Romans 15, 7 pops there. Receive and welcome one another into your own little circles. Even as Christ received you into that little circle called the triune God to the glory of God. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to receive a gentle exhortation from the Holy Spirit whose power, though omnipotent, is gentle and applies the gentle pressure of love to each of us, a pressure which induces humility, a pressure 
which produces unity. A pressure that produces the fruit of the spirit, which is love. This unity results in the proclamation of the gospel of the saving grace of Christ and the life-giving spirit to areas where the name of Jesus Christ has only been heard in cursing or in empty liturgy, such as the United States of America. 